Hey, we're in week two of our financial freedom series. And uh, I know that some people, you brought friends or family for the first time to church last week. Yeah, you guys can go. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> sure, the five o'clock people, you can appreciate your worship team as well. Uh, they probably look different to that one, but that's fine. Um, with people brought people along to church for the first time, and I know uh, when I said, hey, we're talking about money, that's like everyone's worst invite nightmare coming true. But I actually spoke to a lot of people that did bring people for the first time last week and just how much they loved it, how much they got out of it, and uh, I just love that. And so hopefully today will be the same. Uh, that everyone's going to get something out of it. And I love as well that, you know, we are a community of disciples, right, of people following Jesus and, and wanting to mirror our lives after him. And so we're learners and we actually take the word and we do something with it. And I've loved hearing stories this week of people getting some of the books I recommended. You can go on the app or online to see the books I recommended, reading it. People already starting to review their finances and going, oh man, like where's all of this at? I've loved people telling me like, man, that was pretty convicting, talking about like how much of a hold it has on your heart. And people going through those prayers where you surrender it all to God. And uh, I just, I love that. And we need to be doing that. We need to take the word and run with it and do something with it. And so I just want to encourage us to keep going in that journey. Uh, we, we want to see, we're, we're called a financial freedom, not just because our year we were focused on freedom, but also because God wants to see us financially free. When I say financially, I mean possessions, I mean our, our careers, our salaries, our Kiwi savers, all of that sort of money stuff. God actually wants us to be financially free in two ways. He wants us to be uh, spiritually free. Is in like none of that stuff has a bit of our heart. And that's what we were talking about last week. But he also wants us to apply the wisdom that he has in the scripture so that over the course of our lives, we can become more physically free and more of a blessing to the people around us where our decisions in life are not being determined by our debt or by our obligations, but actually just by whatever God wants us to do in our lives. And so there should be this progression of becoming more physically free in our lives um, if we apply biblical wisdom, it should happen that way and we don't end up entrapped in debt or unnecessary debt or too many, uh, you know, afterpays and all these silly things that can easily get us and have us trapped for a lot longer than we should be in these things. So I hope that over the few weeks that we're doing, and if you take some of those books, they're all going to help you get free in both of those ways. We've been talking not so much about principles, although we will get to principles because principles matter. That's how we put all the stuff into action. But I really felt in this series to take a step back and go, let's get the paradigms right first. Let's get the ways of thinking about this stuff right first. Because if we just start reorganizing our budgets and start giving to this and doing that and saving this and getting out of debt, we can do all the right things. But if it doesn't have the right understanding, the right heart, it actually counts for nothing. It just ends up religious duty. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, it says this, um, that, uh, verse 3, if I give all of I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, it's like I gave up my whole self for this, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So it's important that we get these paradigms because we might do all the right stuff, but not for the right reason. Now, if we do it for the wrong reason, it actually doesn't count. 
And that, that should be challenging and convicting. So the paradigms, the ways of thinking, the ways of seeing, and I could talk about a lot of paradigms. We only have time for a few in this series. So we did the heart last week. We did the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and is like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, well, do what the law says. And he's like, I've done it all. And we talked about how that part of the law means that he would have been incredibly generous, more generous than most of us. And, and Jesus and he goes, well, actually, one thing you lack, um, take all you have, sell it, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away quite sad. He doesn't do that because it says he has many possessions and Jesus was able to put his finger on. He might be being generous. He might be doing the right things. He might look like a great Christian as far as everyone else was concerned, but he didn't love Jesus more than stuff. And because of that, he missed out. And I was saying to our 6.30 crew last week just about how he misses out on his destiny because possessions got in his heart. And how many other followers of Jesus miss out on their true destiny in Jesus because of the distractions and the deceitfulness of wealth? So many, millions and millions and millions. And I, he stays as the unnamed rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, but he could have been a great named disciple and apostle that we could have read about in the book of Acts if he would have just left everything to follow Jesus. And so we just, we realize how important seeing our possessions through the lens of how much of our heart do they have really, really matters. That story goes on, and that's going to lead us into what we're talking about today, where um, Jesus goes, yeah, well, it's pretty hard for rich people to enter heaven. And the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? We thought the whole reason we're following you was to get rich and powerful. Like many Christians, I'm doing all of this for, for you, Jesus, so that you'd bless me more and give me more and allow me to do whatever I want to do with my life. And, the, and Jesus says, yeah, it's real hard for rich people to enter heaven. It's like so hard, it's like a camel going through the eye of, an eye of a needle. And they're like, well, who can be saved then? Because in their mind, like rich people were favored by God. And he goes, well, with, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now, what he's not saying is it's easy for poor people to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's just acknowledging it's hard for rich people. And, and Peter and the other disciples, they're sort of like, oh my goodness, this whole thing's getting flipped upside down. We thought we were following you to be like the rich young ruler. But it turns out he's not the model. And so we've given up everything, Jesus. What do we get? Is what he says in verse 28 of uh, Matthew 10. He says, Peter said, we have left everything to follow you. And, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, we could put in their businesses and property for me and the gospel, the good news, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions. Most of us are like, oh, well, we'll We'll take or leave that. Um, but yes, give me a hundred times of the other things. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. And I've heard people talk about this passage as like, see, if you give up everything for God, He will bless you a hundredfold, a hundred times. But it's funny how we only focus on the fields part. Like more property, more, the more of the stuff I've given up, he'll give me more of that. None of us want like a hundred times as many siblings, do we? Or a hundred times as many mothers. I mean, I love my mother, but a hundred people checking in on me, you know, that's a bit much. And so it's, it's, 
we, we can misinterpret what's going on here. What is Jesus saying? He's saying something that's so far out of our paradigm, but it's the paradigm we're going to talk about today. He's saying, I'm going to give you the church. That's what he's saying. It's like he's saying it's okay if in this culture where family is everything and in this culture where property is everything and in this culture where your ability to take care of yourself is everything, it's okay if you've left all of that for me and for the good news. It's okay because what I'm going to give you, wait for it, it's going to be awesome, the church. Like Jesus, this is good. Jesus is saying this like this is awesome. And most of us will be like, huh? You got anything else? Is there, is there something more? Like, because I, I understand maybe a bit about church, but I don't understand it to be a blessing. I don't understand it to be of worth giving up everything for. If that's my reward, is there something else? And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, actually, there's this paradigm. There's this thing I'm building, and it's called my church, and it's how I'm going to bless you and make up for everything you've ever had to leave for my sake in this world. And we'd have to pause here and go, most of us don't see church that way. Well, whatever, church is maybe a thing you feel obligated to be at. Maybe it's like, okay, I don't really understand it, but I guess it's got some good stuff to it. You know, church can be a lot of things, but I don't think we would say it's the way God's blessing us. But God says it's the way He's blessing us. So maybe we need a paradigm change. In fact, I think if we don't get our head around how God sees the church, we'll never be able to steward the finances we have in our lives in the way He desires. And we'd have to be honest that for many people, and some of us will be in this room, but many people obviously would more not be in church, and they would be Christians still, have an issue with church and have an issue with giving to the church. And I think that's why we need to look into this paradigm. And just like at the 9 a.m. gathering, and I'm sure at the 5 as well, it's getting real quiet right now. <laughs> church. Church is... Um, you know, I, before I became a Christian at 16, I heard people talk bad about the church. I heard different things like about how the church was responsible for the horrific crusades in history. Um, I heard about, you know, different disappointing moments where the church didn't show its best side but its worst side and that was a reason to not trust the church or not love the church. And, and I sort of expected that from people who weren't Christians, to, to judge that. But what I didn't, what I wasn't ready for when I became a Christian was for how many Christians don't like the church. What I wasn't ready for is how many people in church don't like the church they're in or don't like the church they used to be in or don't like the church that they were in two churches ago. What I wasn't ready for is how negatively people of God talked about God's church how cynical people were, how judgmental people were, how opinionated people were. It really, like what I didn't discover as I moved from a person who didn't grow up in the church and found Jesus and found a church that was so bizarre and weird compared to our church and religious and all of that, what I wasn't ready for 
was how many people in church didn't like the thing they were in or didn't like the other versions of the thing they were in. I really wasn't ready for it. I thought this was a place where people would love the thing that Jesus loved. And it's quite unsettling as a new Christian to be like, hold on a minute, I just came into this thing. What's bad about it? <laughs> to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It just, this was a big leap of faith to get here, guys. But it sounds like you don't like where we are. And we've got to process that stuff today. Where to go does our perspective line up with God's perspective? And I know partly I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. And I know partly I'm not. Because I know that about half of the people in our church don't contribute financially to the church. There's only one of two issues there. Either you're not generous people, or you are generous, but you're not church people. You've got issues around that. Only you would know which one it is. I don't. But it's worth talking about. And around us, all of us have people around our lives, no doubt, that have church issues. And so we need to talk about this stuff. Understand why people have church issues? I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff has happened in church. So much bad stuff. I could just, I could, you know, cry for the next three hours just talking about the bad stuff that's happened to me in church. A lot of bad stuff's happened in church. A lot of abuses have happened because, and through church leaders and church cultures that have covered those things up rather than dealt with those things. Uh, a lot of uh, leaders have let churches down through, um, through their own decisions or lack of integrity or whether it be stealing money or having an affair or they were people for people to look up to but they broke that trust and they weren't able to finish strong and be an example or whatever it was being hurt and betrayed or heard those stories. I'm not surprised young people struggle to trust, trust church leadership anymore because it feels like every week there's another major headline about a pastor somewhere in the world that is like fallen in some way. Like some horrible stuff's happened in church. Let alone all the politics and the things that somebody shouldn't have said or the person that was sitting in your seat today or whatever it was. You know, all that annoying, just the, the, the little things. Or the thing that I said that you got offended about, but I didn't know you got offended about, and I wasn't trying to offend everybody or was trying to offend everybody. I don't know what I was doing. But you know, there's all this stuff that's just constantly happening. And I understand why we get hurt and why we sort of like hold it at a distance. But one of the things we cannot do is we cannot blame the church because the church didn't do it. Somebody did it or a group of people did it or a toxic culture in a certain place maybe did it. But when you blame the church, all you do is abdicate your Christian responsibility from reconciling and forgiving because how can you forgive a non-entity? But when you actually identify, no, it wasn't the church, it was that pastor. And it wasn't that person was a small group leader. And it wasn't that it was a person sitting in my seat. And I'm not going to blame the whole church across the world for something that three people did. And we can take responsibility for the stuff and begin to move past. Because if we don't, we end up those cynical people, those distrusting people, those people distancing ourselves from the very paradigm God's trying to bless us with. And we miss out on what God's doing. I think even in my short stint on life, I've been a part of this one local church for my entire adult life, I've got enough reasons, more than most, to have walked away from the church. But I'm a church person. I believe, I, I want my idea of church to be formed by God's Word and by His Spirit and not by my experiences 
and not by my feelings and not by what's easy for me. And there are way too many Christians out there in our society that have lost their love for God's church. And I know what happens with that. People say, well, you, you can be a Christian without going to church. I heard someone say, yeah, well, you can be married and never go home too. You're missing the point. You're missing the point that we're, this is the thing God's trying to bless us with, that we have a part to play, that it's how we come to know God more is through the relationships. It's how we live out these ideals. It's how God's trying to reveal his kingdom to the earth. The church really matters and we need to move past these things. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. This is, I think this is a quote for our time. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. This is a quote for our time because this is what happens. We love what it should be or what it could be more than we actually love each other. And when that happens, we always erode it and destroy it. Is it perfect? No. Has it got a lot wrong? Yes. But has it done a lot of good? Oh my goodness. I would bet that without the local church, none of us would be here. Actually, the Bible says in Proverbs 11.1, 1, the Lord detests the use of dishonest scales, but he delights in accurate weights. And I think in many ways that the people judge the church, the Lord detests it because they point out the three things wrong with it rather than the 300 things beautiful about it. And that is not a fair judgment. That is to miss all of the beauty of what's happening there's been entire books written about the impact of the church and the Christian thought and perspective on the world over the last 2,000 years. Much of what we take for granted in our Western society, and I know it's all about beating up on the West at the moment, but much of what we take for granted in Western society, even though it's not perfect, has its birthplace in the church. It's the church that created the idea of hospitals and welfare systems and education systems and just law systems and all of these things. The very idea that we even have human rights comes from the church. You can go to uh, societies where the church hasn't influenced the thought in the East, and you can live there if you like, and you can see that people are not even thought of as equal, let alone treated equal. And that is the impact of the church. What is the church? When we look at the Bible, we get just some little understanding today, get some little teaching about this today. The word church in the Bible is this word ecclesia. This is literally what it means. It doesn't mean a building. It doesn't mean anything like that. Ecclesia, a body of free citizens gathered by a herald. It's like confusing words. It's a whole bunch of people that got together because somebody said something. When everyone gets together for a protest, somebody posts a herald online and says, they post a herald on the herald or whatever, you know, like, they, hey, we're going to get together to stand up for this. When all those people got together, that was a church. Not a church as we now understand it, but that's what the word meant when Christianity grabbed it. It didn't mean you on your own. When people go, I am the church, you're like, sort of. <laughs> Close, but not complete. Because the word actually means a whole bunch of people gathered voluntarily because a proclamation has been made. People talk about how it means the called out because literally it's two Greek words like put together. But theologically, that's not what it means. Okay, like, that's not the word had its own meaning, but it's sort of cool. 
to think of these people called out in the world. And the church has two layers or two expressions, and we need to understand this. There is the global church. It's, it's made up of all of the true believers, if you would. It's the church God sees first and foremost, the global church. You could say it's the transcendent collection of all believers across history. It is the kingdom of God. But then the global church expresses itself locally in, the church, in its community. The local church is where the universal church takes up a local and a temporal expression in which the idea of church as a whole gets exhibited to people, where this ethereal thing becomes something real through the local church. And the best way for you to serve the global church is to serve your local church, to be involved in your local church. Just in case we're missing it, here's some amazing things the Scripture says about church, and most of the time it uses the word ecclesia for church. It's actually referring to the local church, not the global church, just so you know. So in, um, in 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. In, the, in Ephesians 1, it says the church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is actually peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. God's purpose, if we move to Ephesians 3, and all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Jesus said that your love for one another, speaking of the disciples together, the church, will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And the church is his body. It's Jesus' body. It's made full and complete by Christ who fills all things with himself everywhere. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the powers of hell will not conquer it, will not stand against it. It actually says that we're his, the church is his temple and you are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. It says for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. The church matters to God, and he's coming back for her. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, has come, and his bride has made him herself ready. Man, you cannot read the scriptures and say church is optional. You cannot actually be informed by that. You cannot see that anywhere in the pattern of scriptures or in the direct teachings of scriptures, in the historical account of scriptures. You see that the global church matters and it expresses itself locally and people who were believers got together and did this thing called church. That is just how it is. And so every time somebody says, I want Jesus and not the church, I understand the sentiment we're trying to lead people towards Jesus, not the church. But the reality is, is when you get Jesus, you get the church, whether you like it or not. You become a part of the global church, whether you like it or not. The only question is, is whether or not you're walking in obedience to play your part in the local church as God has intended you would so he could bless you. So we could give you the hundred times as many brothers, sisters, and mothers, and fields, and all of a sudden, everything we have, I love the church. I'm like, all of a sudden, I have whatever you have. We got it together. And I know I don't have to worry about anything, because you got heaps. And we're going to be fine together. Isn't that amazing? 
And somebody here that's coming, they don't have hardly anything and they just met Jesus and they're trying to get their life together and all of a sudden they get this blessing that they got more than they could have ever imagined. All of a sudden they got a counselor, a psychologist, they got a brother, they got a friend, they got a mother, they got a father, they got a teacher, they got people looking after them, and they got access to food, they got access to help, they got all this stuff. And they thought, man, I gave up everything to follow Jesus, but it turns out I got a hundred times more. But sometimes we miss that because we got a lot ourselves. We miss it. We need to know that the church is not you and your mates just having a holy huddle up the mountain having a prayer time. That's great. It's an expression of being church, but it's not the local church. No different than any Christian charity, no different than Christian surfers, no different than a YWAM base, no different than any of these things. They're great, but they're not the church. We have to have God's perspective of what the local church is and what the local church is about. The local church exists to bring God glory. It sits with Jesus as its head, and it exists for His purposes. That's how it brings Him glory. The church's purposes could be summed up in three areas, to worship the Lord, to equip people, and to reach the world. Everything that we do fits somehow into one of those three banners. There's God's holistic purposes for the transformation of people's lives. You know, people sometimes then go, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, the church, but it's too organizing now. It's too institutionally. It's like, yeah, I'm about the church, like this sort of organic, ethereal thing, this idea of it. Me and my mates just doing life together. That's what Christians say as they're phasing on out of church, you know, to justify it. They go, because the institutional church, that's just not of God. Man, you'd be surprised how institutional it is in the Scriptures. What starts off as purely organic quickly takes order, and even the order is affirmed and commanded in the Scriptures. We read in the Scriptures of there being meetings, there being elections, there being offices, there being designations of its ministers, there being recognized authority of certain members, discipline, contributions, letters of recommendation, registers, uniform customs, ordinances, common purses and collections, qualifications for membership, and common work that the whole body did together. Sounds like the organism took on a bit of organization took on a bit of form and structure. And so we shouldn't be against these things in the Scripture. We just read about the growing up of the church. What starts is this like, whoa, what's God doing? Has to get some order so it can continue to be, whoa, what's God doing? In fact, every time that more order is brought to the church, it's interesting, there's a greater release of mission in the book of Acts. It's an interesting pattern that when they solve a problem and they appoint some people and they bring some organization, there's always another release which is interesting. And man, your local church matters. I don't know if everyone's a part of this local church or not, but your local church matters. Not only does the local church and its general idea matter, but your local church matters. Curate matters. Curate is facilitating the worship of thousands of people. We stretch ourselves. The team works too much to make it happen so that we can have a place for everybody to worship. The church is helping people holistically. It's equipping people. It's discipling people. It's making disciples. I had a bunch of people come up to me after the last gathering just being like, oh my God, I just need to tell you, thank you, pastor. I know it's not you, but like the, uh, people have been reaching out to me in life. I've been clean for this long. I've been had this going on. And just like, we're so thankful. 
because the church is doing great work and we're reaching people. And tell me over the last five years that 519 people have been baptized in our church. It's effective. There won't be another local church in our city that is seeing that many people baptized. And that is effective work, accomplishes purpose. See, your local church matters and your support to it therefore matters. And your withholding of support matters. It's a, it's an, it's a big deal. I could say a lot of things, but I want to finish with saying that giving to your local church is biblical and it makes a difference. Nothing, forget about obligations, forget about how much, forget about the principal side of things. You could not conclude from an honest reading of the scriptures and the patterns in the scripture that withholding finances from your church was what God wanted you to do. You just couldn't. That every time we read about the church doing something, how did it do it? It did it because people understood that contributing to it created a release. We see it in Jesus. Jesus received financial support that allowed him and the 12 apostles to not work for three and a half years, but actually fulfill the message and the mission of proclaiming the good news. We see it in the Jewish church in Acts 2.44. It says that all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. This is beautiful. And in Acts 4.34, it says that there was no needy people among them. That's how good it, it, they were doing because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So they took care of all of the needs in the church. And some people look at these scriptures and go, well, why don't we do that today? Why don't we just sell everything and just pull it all together and do a glory veil? <laughs> That's why. <laughs> because this is actually a very Jewish thing in the scriptures. It actually doesn't, we don't see the Gentile church do this in the same way. This is actually describing what happened, not prescribing what should happen. But we can learn principles and patterns for it. We know that the Jewish church was the poorest church. We knew that they'd been kicked out of their synagogues, their communities. Though we knew that they're under heavy oppression from Rome. The only way they could literally survive and get through the week is if somebody did a potluck every day. And somebody might have not had enough to feed their family, but they might have had something, a bit of oil, a bit of bread, a bit of flour, a bit of whatever, and they brought it all together and everybody got fed. And some people saw how desperate the church then said, there's no point in me keeping a field and me being plush while most of the church is struggling. Let's sell some stuff and make sure everyone's taken care of. But they didn't like control it themselves. They laid it at the apostles' feet, knowing the heart of the local church and entrusted that everybody's needs would be met. This is a powerful, beautiful example. We see a similar thing, however, in the Gentile church. Not to the same extreme, but the same heart to take care of one another. In Thessalonians 3, it says, Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Thessalonians, like, oh, challenging. Thessalonians 3.14, Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. What's going on here is they have a common meal probably taking place every day. And some people get so used to freeloading off the common meal that they stop working because they're like, well, I don't really need to work because I could just turn up to the church meal every day and I'm going to be taken care of. And they're not bringing anything. And Paul's like, you missed the point. The point is, is if you're able, go and work. I'm not saying if you're not able or if you're between jobs, but if you're able, you should be out there 
trying to work so that you can bring something to the table so that there's enough in the church to go around. Don't be dependent on people you don't need to be dependent on. We see again a common purse, this common account working in the church. We see them bringing what they could so that everybody would have more. And then somebody messaged me this week and said, I want to give to the church, but I don't want it to go to salaries. <laughs> Just want to let you know I'm not on commission. <laughs> That's Old Testament, the priestly tithe. That'll be a good, I'd be on a good thing if I was on commission, okay? Um, but it says this in 1 Corinthians 9.13, don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? Those who serve at the altar get the share of the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating the grain it treads out. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. So we see a precedent in the scriptures. People supported the work of Jesus so he could preach. People supported the work of the apostles. They weren't working. They were preaching and praying and administering in the word. And we see the same thing happening in the churches. We know that Paul received support from churches so he didn't have to support other churches. And then we see them take up this whole big offering in 2 Corinthians. We don't have time to get into it. But really he's saying, like, be generous because we want to be able to give to other churches to support them in their hard times and see the work of God in the local church just extend. So what does all of this draw down to? Well, that churches have always operated with a common account, with a common purse, where we pulled our stuff together for the purposes of God's church. The purse was used for the work of the church, the supporting of people in the church, and the supporting of some people around the church. But the scriptures always say, first make sure those are taken care of in the household of faith. We just can pause here because I want everyone to know in our church, that's the heart of our church too. And there's always provision for people that are doing it tough. And you, all you need to do is ask. And there's always provision and processes for those things. So what can we conclude from all of this today? We can conclude that we're supposed to be generous and generous towards our local church. We can conclude that when this happens, the work of the church is supported the needs of the church are met and a difference is made in the surrounding community. We give to our local church for these reasons, because the local church is God's idea, not man's idea. Because we receive from our local church, so we should give to our local church. Because our local church is facilitating God's purposes. Because our local church is a vehicle for holistic transformation. And because our local church challenges our ability to entrust, to hold on, to direct, and to control how the money is used and so it stops it getting in our heart. I want to say, church, that we have to keep growing up in this way. We can't let the cynicism of our times, of the Christians around us, that aren't for the church, determine our heart towards the church. It needs to be shaped by God's word, by God's spirit, by God's heart. We need to have this paradigm. If you don't get this paradigm, everything will feel icky when it comes to church. Your sphincter will always close up. <laughs> when we talk about giving and when we talk about what God's doing and when we talk about how you could contribute to it, if you don't get the paradigm, if you don't see how God sees, His Word never makes sense and produces the fruit it's supposed to produce. So my questions for reflection today are this. 
Has hurt influenced the way I see church? Do I have trust issues with the church? Am I a consumer in my church or a contributor? Have other opinions shaped my perspective more than the Bible? Do I practice regular giving to my local church? Why or why not? And what is the Spirit speaking to me today or leading me to? The reality is, is there shouldn't be such a thing as a stingy Christian. We all have different means. We all have different abilities. What generosity looks like for one person is not what it looks like for another. Where 10% is a huge stretch for another, 10% is way too easy for somebody else. You can't put a figure on it. You can't lock it into a clear principle. But only you would know, am I actually being generous? Am I stretching myself in my trust of God? And have I got God's paradigm of the church? Next week, we're going to do God's paradigm of justice because we don't stop at our local church. We go on from there to do even more.